Welcome to the online home of Providence Christian Church in Cape Coral, Florida. If you would like more information, visit us online at ProvidenceCapeCoral.com. Now may the Lord bless the preaching and the hearing of His Word. Well done, children. I ask you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Today we come to uh, the 14th chapter of Hosea as we have taken kind of a high-altitude flyover examination of this book. Uh, other books within the Minor Prophets will get deeper in the weeds on some of it, but um, Hosea 14 has been sort of a higher-altitude flyover of God's self-portrait of his relationship with his people. Chapter 14 ends that self-portrait and calls his people to repent. But that call is never divorced from what we have learned about our God. With that in mind, give attention to the reading of God's word. Hosea 14, hear the word of the Lord. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will no more say our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this, uh, this trek through this fantastic book. We've, uh, we've learned so much. We've seen the way in which you paint yourself before the world as a, a loving husband to an unfaithful bride. And yet your love persists for her. We pray today that you would speak one last time to us through this book, that we would be as those who were wise and who discern the ways of the Lord, that we would be shaped by all these things, that we would not be as those who look into this word to learn things and then walk away after church forgetting everything we've heard. But Lord, shape us according to this chapter, because you so love us. Because we are united to the Son of your affection. It's in His name that we pray in God's people's Son. Amen. You may be seated. 
I was uh, catching up with an old pastor friend of mine who was telling me about a sermon that he had preached on the topic of pornography, which he thought was one of the best sermons he'd ever preached. That was until an elderly man after service in the exit line told him otherwise. I don't get any ideas, by the way. He's preaching on the topic of pornography, and he laid out many true things from Holy Scripture. Uh, He spoke of both the mental and the spiritual damage which comes to those who uh, use pornography. He spoke about the Lord's anger toward unrepented of lust. He quoted from... Uh, the book of Revelation, which says that in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, there is no room for the sexually immoral. He even quoted secular studies that pointed out that men who use pornography are three times more likely to suffer deep depression. Everything he said was true. And said, you need to find accountability. You need to be warned of the dangers of pursuing this kind of lifestyle. Like I said, he thought it was a good sermon. He thought it was faithful. And much of what he said was true. Then this mysterious stranger, this elderly man who he had never seen before and never saw again, meted him in the exit line and said... It won't work. What you said, it's all true. But it's not going to work for the men in your church. He went on to explain that he, in his church, he meets with several young men who are traveling businessmen and are bombarded by sexual temptation on their televisions or various kinds of women at bars and such. And he says, he said, my friend, men and women do what they find joy in. And all you've done is say, turn away from this joy. And you put no joy in the place of it. What you said is true and threats and warning, they have their place. But what changes the heart of men and women is not warnings alone or threats but to come face to face with the love of God. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Titus that grace teaches us to say no. Wrath and and warning and, and threats of judgment, they have their place, but what changes the heart is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. The Lord Himself says in verse 4, I will heal them from their apostasy with my love. Our heart is made for joy, brothers and sisters, and whenever the Bible calls us to repent of something, that something we're pursuing, we pursue because we think it's going to bring us joy. And so the Bible never says, turn away from that joy and it and leaves you then in a vacuum. But it always says, this is the joy you're seeking. It's counterfeit. It will kill you. 
But the joy that you were made for is found in the Lord Himself. It sets before you a greater joy. Follow me, Jesus says. I am what your heart is designed for. I mean, our hearts are designed to bring joy, to find joy. It's embedded in our youngest kids from the earliest age in our catechism, right? What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Christ designed your heart for joy. You will seek it in something. And the call to repent of sin is always to find that joy in the Lord. With that in mind, Hosea 14 ends with a call to repent, turn away. It may very well be that this was a chapter amended later that God had warned and threatened that Assyria was coming. They have come. They've destroyed the northern kingdom in 722. And now, through His prophet, He is saying, return to God. Repent of your sin. We are called to do something, but whenever we are called to do something in Holy Scripture, whenever we are given an imperative, that is to say a command, you'll always find there's an indicative or something that is already true hanging around. So if you're called to forgive, it's because you have been forgiven. If you're called to love, it's because you have been loved. The indicative drives the imperative. What is true drives what we are to do. So before we look at that call to repent, I want to rehearse with you what we've learned about our God. What is true before we move on to what we are then to do? What is true? What have we learned about our Lord? You'll recall, or if you're visiting with us today, uh, Hosea is a prophet who was given one of the most unique uh, prophetic calls among all the prophets, and that is the Lord said, I want you to live out in miniature what it's like for me to be in relationship with Israel. So Hosea is to represent the Lord. And interestingly, the Lord doesn't say to him, I'm going to make you a king and you're going to have all these servants. Or I'm going to make you an employer and I'm going to give you all these employees. But rather, the way you are to mirror my relationship with Israel is by taking a woman for yourself. The relationship the Lord has with His people is of the most intimate that only human marriage can dimly reflect. And He says, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who is a serial adulteress. And yet, your love must not change for her. What do we learn about the Lord who calls us to repent first is that He is passionately in love with you. With a love of constancy. 
A love that cannot fluctuate. Because Christian, you are loved as you are in union with His Son. You have become one flesh with Him. And so the Father cannot love you more than He does today. Because the one you are enfleshed with is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So His love cannot shift for you. He loves you not because of your obedience. He, loved, he set His love on you before the foundation of the world, not because He foresaw that you would be a great candidate for the kingdom. He loves you because He loves you. He loves you because He is love. Let me show you one more place before we leave this book. It's in Hosea chapter 2. It's really quite remarkable what, what happens here. And if I know preachers are guilty of hyperbole, we're paid to be hyperbolic, but I think this is some of the most over-the-top shocking language in all of the book. It happens here in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Do we have that on the screen? We do. Let me, let me remind you of the context here. So, Chapter 1, the Lord says to Hosea, marry a woman named Gomer. You're going to have kids with her. The relationship's going to start well. But then she's going to start producing these kids that don't look anything like you because they are from one-night flings. She's a serial adulteress. But then by the time we get to chapter 2, she's deserted. Hosea, leaving him with the kids. She's gone. She's off with some other guy. And here's why chapter 2 is so crucial. There are two explicit grounds in Holy Scripture that God gives to men and women for divorce. Do you know what they are? Adultery and abandonment. Divorce is never the ideal, but when there are cases of adultery or abandonment, the offended is within their rights to say, before God, I want nothing to do with this marriage any longer. You see what Gomer's done? Both. A serial adulteress, and she's abandoned. Hosea. And so we expect, knowing what we know about the law of Moses, to this point in Hosea, that the Lord is now going to say, therefore, go into the desert and bring her a certificate of divorce. I'm full within my rights to divorce this adulteress who has abandoned me. That's how we operate. But look at the logic of grace here. Chapter 2, verse 14. He sends Hosea and says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will allure her. I will bring her to the wilderness with tenderness. I'll speak to my cheating wife. The reason this is shocking is not only that the Lord was within His full rights to divorce His people and say, you know, you knew the constraints, you knew the boundaries, you transgressed them both. But 
The Lord says, I will allure her. And the reason why this is, is shocking is because that word allure is used regularly in the Old Testament. And the word is used always in contexts that are risque. It's, it's off color. It's, it's not a proper verb. It's the word that's used for men who seduce virgins. It's the word that is used for a prostitute who entices men to come. There were many words that the Lord could have used here. I will draw her. I will call her. But this is the self-portrait that He paints. I will seduce her. I will enter into any romantic ploy to win back the heart of my cheating wife. No matter how embarrassed I become, no matter how much of a fool she has made me to feel and look, I will seduce her. I will entice her. I will do whatever it takes to win her love. over the top. It's an over the top romantic image that the Lord is painting of himself here. It's intended to shock you. It's intended to say, you know, if we spoke Hebrew, we'd think, don't ever put those verbs in the mouth of the Lord. And yet the Lord says, I will entice her. I'll seduce her. And I'll do it in the desert. Why the desert? Well, the desert, you'll recall, or the, why the wilderness? This is the place where the Lord says our relationship began. I brought you out of Egypt. Remember the Father going through the photo album. I brought you out of Egypt and in the wilderness. We loved one another. It was our honeymoon period. You loved me like a bride on her honeymoon. It's the wilderness where the fond memories of the Lord, if we can speak in such a way, where He says, do you remember the good times? Remember our honeymoon? Incidentally, it's not an accident that when we come to the New Testament, you've got this strange man preaching, making the way for the Lord, and where is He preaching? In the wilderness. I will seduce her. I will cause my wife to fall back in love with me. We can start again. And it all begins in the wilderness where John says, Behold, there He is, the Lamb of God. The groom has come for His wife. It's also in the wilderness that the Lord demonstrates that Hosea 14 is not rhetoric. He said, whatever it takes, I will become one of you. I will be spat upon. I will have my back opened with a whip. I'll be nailed to a tree and thrown in the ground dead. I will do whatever it takes to give her life and happily ever after at that. That's what's true of our God. That's the Lord who comes in in the midst today and says, I have not changed. This is an ancient text to a, a people that didn't listen. 
but I remain the same. This is the love that I have for you. It cannot and will not fluctuate because it's centered on one who cannot and will not fluctuate. That sets the stage for what we see in verses 1 through 4. Look again there. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Now stop right there. I mean, against all deserving, all, the marriage remains. I'm still, I'm right here. Though you're an adulteress and though you've deserted, the marriage holds. You can still call me your husband. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. Stop there for a moment. The Lord says it's on account of your iniquity that you've stumbled. But I'm still your God. Still the husband who loves his wife, though she has committed shameful things. My love for you has not shifted in any way. What if that's true? As I believe it is. I believe that's the testimony of Holy Scripture. It's the testimony of this book. It's the testimony of the New Testament that God's love for you does not depend upon your level of obedience or whether or not you've had a good or a bad day. Whether you've been bold for Jesus or whether you're a coward in the face of being maligned for His name. His love for you is constant. His love for you is white hot through His Son. If that is indeed true, I want you to consider the freedom and the safety we have with Him when we find ourselves falling into sin. Because if you believed, as many of our friends within the Catholic Church, within the Mormon Church, many within our denomination, every Christian denomination who thinks that if there is hope for me, it is based in me and my response and my obedience, and my prayer life, and my evangelism. If you think your value, your currency, your your juice, whatever you want to say, your hope for entering eternal life is based upon your obedience. When the Holy Spirit puts His finger on a sin in your life, or when a fellow Christian comes to you and says, hey, that was pretty ugly. If your obedience is your armor, your value, your currency, your response will be, no. Or, I may have done it, but so-and-so caused me to do it. It's the woman you gave me, Adam says. What does Eve say? The devil, he, he did it to me. All this movement of blame. But what if what God is saying here is true, that I love you with an everlasting love. An eternal love grounded in an eternal being with whom you have been made one flesh. Not only so, but that it's His delight to receive messy but penitent sinners who come to Him. He says, 
I don't want you to be miserable. I don't want you to be destroyed, as we saw last week. I desire that you live, Israel. Turn, turn. Find life. God finds joy in being exalted, not in our damnation, but in our salvation. That His deepest heart is that it beats for sinners, not for the self-righteous, or not for those who justify or try to excuse their sin, because there is no justification or excuse for trampling on that kind of heart. But if the Lord says... Or if the Lord loves you as He says He does, what it means is that when, when I am convicted of my own sin, when you are, the Lord says, drop the excuses. Come to me with a broken and contrite heart because that's what I receive. The only way home to me is with honesty. That's what the Lord is saying here in verses 4 to 6. Look there if you would. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Verse 5 there, the Lord is here promising the refreshment, the the restoration of the soul. Israel, like Florida, you know, the rain shut off for half the year. And they didn't have irrigation like like we do. And so things got dry and ground got hard and everything became parched. And maybe, maybe that's how you feel this morning. Spiritually, you feel dry. You feel like the vitality you once had for Jesus has been dulled or it's or it's missing. What the Lord says to you, what the Lord says to me, is come to me. And like in verse 2, bring words to me. It's your iniquity that caused you to stumble. You remember iniquity? It's that horrible, horrible description that the Jews used for the motive of the heart. It's that twistedness, that darkness within us that explains Why we sin? Why do we gossip about people? Because we like to cut others down and make ourselves look better. That's why. Why do we run to pornography? Here's why. You like relationship but no responsibility. And you don't care about the girl on the screen. That's why. Iniquity. Lord says, so you're dry, you're spiritually dry. You feel like you're here today, but you know that in your heart you're a million miles away from the Lord. His name's on your lips, but in your heart you're keeping Him far away because you're continuing in some sin or you haven't turned away from it. And the Lord says, the only way home, the only way home is own it. Own what you know to be true. I will restore your soul. I won't wag my finger. I won't 
I told you so. I won't put you on probation. I'll nourish you. Let the living waters flow down into your heart. But you must own this. And then verse 6. Look there. He describes himself, not only will I refresh you, but I will strengthen you like a tree. Trees of Lebanon known throughout history as symbols of strength and that which can sustain heavy winds and so on and so forth. The Lord says, I will restore your vigor. Where there is death, I will bring life. Where there is instability in your walk with me, I will strengthen it. Where there's spiritual death, I'll give life. Perhaps we might even say where you are asleep, spiritually asleep, I'll wake you up. You may recall that when we studied the book of Revelation together, one of the common ways that Jesus described His people who had lost their first love for Him, had become distracted with the things of this world, had lost all their boldness in evangelism, had become comfortable with their sin. He said those people are asleep. Remember that? It's in Revelation chapter 3. He's talking to a group of people in a city called Sardis. We won't rehearse all the details here. But this group had a lot in common with Hosea's audience. They, it wasn't that they didn't believe, it's just that they didn't make much of the Lord anymore. There were no real scandals in Sardis, but that's probably on account that they weren't very public with their faith. They didn't invite any persecution, and they also didn't invite anyone in with new ideas. They just sort of existed as Christians. And Jesus said to them, You need to wake up. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. Maybe you know exactly what that spiritual slumber feels like. I think every church, every individual from from time to time goes in these seasons where the church falls asleep, where the individual falls asleep. They forget that we've been called to proclaim the excellencies of God through the way we live, the way we think, how we spend our money, how we use our bodies, how we use our words, and we, come, we become complacent and comfortable and just sort of cruising to heaven. Avoiding the big sins, of course, but also not doing anything sacrificial for Jesus. You get in this kind of, Jerry Bridges used to call it, spiritual cruise control. You're not in the passing lane, You're also not falling behind with huge sins. You're just kind of cruising your way to Jesus. It's comfortable. It's also when people fall asleep at the wheel. (laughs) Maybe you know that. Maybe, Maybe right now with your mind's eye, you can see Jesus with his hand on your shoulder saying, Wake up. Wake up. For the first time, maybe for the thousandth 
Wake up to who it is you serve. Wake up to what it is I call you to do in this world. But you are asleep. Maybe in the words of Hosea, you hear Jesus saying to you this morning, return to the Lord your God. It's because of your iniquity that you've stumbled. How do we wake up? I know how I wake my kids up, right? (laughs) Kick them in the side or turn on uh, music or what have you. Let the dogs in the room and they lick their faces. How do you wake up from spiritual slumber? Jesus actually gives us three steps. And I would say to you that when I fall into sin, when I've become convicted of my own sin, there are no more sweeter instructions than what Jesus said to the church in Sardis that was asleep. Look there at what He says in Revelation 3. 3. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, here's the three steps. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. You could keep that on the screen there. So these are the three steps. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. What's that mean? What's that mean to remember what you received and heard? Well, quite simply, it means this. Remember the Gospel. John is the author of the book of Revelation, and John throughout his Gospel and his epistles regularly refers to this receiving and hearing. And it always describes the beginning of the Christian's spiritual life. It always describes that moment where the Holy Spirit gave you the gift of faith, brought you into the kingdom, where you were adopted to become a son of God and where there is now no more condemnation for you. See what Jesus is saying here? He says to sleepy people, remember the Gospel, the good news that God so loved the world, so loved you, He sent His own Son. He spared not His own Son, but gave Him up for us all that we might live. You see what Jesus is saying? When you've fallen into sin, where do you start? With the Gospel. Remember what is true. Remember the unswerving and unmoving love of My Father for you. And then second, he says, keep it. What does that mean? Well, if the first instruction means to remember something, the second one, to keep it, means be shaped by it. Be transformed by it. Uh, This is where we part ways with demons, right? Because the demons believe the Gospel. They believe in God. They believe Uh, All the things we we sang this morning, they believe in the resurrection. They were there. They believe that Jesus is coming back. 
They believe that they will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented forever. But none of what they believe has shaped their heart's disposition toward Him. They have not let those words, those truths, trickle down through their minds to be absorbed into their hearts and to be shaped by it. So what Jesus is saying here is, don't just think of the propositions of the Gospel, but be shaped by it. Dig the fingernails of your soul into these things and know that they aren't just true, but they are true for you. Remember the Gospel. Dig in deep into it. Let it shape you. Let the living waters go to the parched areas of your soul. And then, and then, You repent. Repentance isn't just a call to stop doing this, stop thinking that, but it's always a call away from one thing to embrace another. It's always a call away from a lesser joy to a greater one. So going back to Hosea, if you look there at verse 3, The Lord says, bring to me a confession of what you've done. Verse 3, they're confessing here that Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Horses are the modern equivalent of a tank. We are not going to look to Assyria to save us, even though they have the best tanks in, in, in the world. Now, the irony here is that at one time, the northern kingdom looked to Assyria and said, You know, uh, Egypt is always a threat in the south. There's this new up-and-coming empire, the Babylonians. Maybe we should make an alliance with Assyria. The irony here is, of course, is that Assyria is the superpower that destroyed them. But they are confessing here particular sins. They're not just coming to the Lord with some sort of generic, sorry, we're all sinners. But Lord, this is what I've done to you. They feel the freedom and the safety to say, I'm not just a sinner, but I have violated you in this way, and in this way, and in that way. Not many of us look to Assyria for comfort today, right? But let me ask you this. How would you... How would you finish this sentence? I would be content if I had this. Or, I wouldn't be worried about the future if I just had this. I'd be happy if I could only have this. How do you fill in those questions? Is the Lord at the center of them all? Maybe you put in those places something that involves a certain level of wealth. 
promotion at work, certain relationship changes. I'd be content if I could just have this kind of relationship or this level of money. Or, or maybe your answer, I'd be assured of the future if there was a political change. Those things are not unimportant, but when they become the things that you have to have to be content, you have to have to truly say God is good, They've become your Assyria. They've become the thing that you say, in this, my joy is found. I don't know what that is for you. I know what it is for me. You know what it is for you. You know what the Spirit is putting His finger on. Maybe that Jesus is calling you to, to do something, to repent of something. That Jesus is calling you to extend forgiveness to someone that's asked. Could be that you're supposed to repent and apologize for something. Could be that you're letting bitterness eat away at your soul because of something that happened years ago. You don't want to give up the power you think you have if you extend forgiveness. But you have no power. Lord says, I will heal you. I will refresh you. Whatever He is calling you to, don't miss the order that Jesus gives. Because it's the exact order, or the exact opposite order of what you and I often do. We fall into sin. What do we do? I got to stop doing that. Repent. I got to take the gospel more seriously. That's keeping it. And then God, and then God will love me. Jesus says that's stupid. And you're wrong. This is not a man-centered religion where you get on a treadmill and you earn it. He says, first, remember what is true. Remember my Father's love for you, exhibited in the fact that I lived for you, I died for you, I'm raised for you, I intercede for you, and I'm coming for you. His love for you cannot and will not change if you're united to me. Then secondly, let that truth shape you. And then, turn away from the counterfeit. Turn away from the lies that you tell yourself. The world tells you that you will find joy in ongoing disobedience to the Lord. And instead, turn to Me, Jesus says. For I am what your heart is made for. This one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one through whom the Lord allured you in the desert. The same Jesus Christ who meets with us in this room today and says, whatever it is I'm calling you to turn away from, bring with me words. Confess your iniquity. And then remember what you have received and heard. Keep it. 
and then turn back to me. You will never be disappointed. Amen? Would you pray with me this morning? Christ, we thank you this morning that you demonstrate that the book of Hosea is not merely words or empty promises of the Father, but you you came to allure us in the wilderness. You came as the, the groom for his bride. You've met with us today, not in order to beat us down, to threaten us, rather to call us out of our folly and our madness and our vain pursuits of anything we think will bring us joy and contentment at the expense of pursuing you. We thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, that immeasurable distance you have taken our sin away from us. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in for today's message. If you would like more information about Providence Christian Church in Cape Coral, Florida, visit us online at ProvidenceCapeCoral.com.